This is Mythos, and I am the creator, Nicole Schmidt. This podcast is a storytelling journey through world folklore. Here, you will experience fresh interpretations of traditional narratives, mainly with a darker edge. The aim of Mythos is to ignite a passion for the lore of generations past by telling the stories with a sense of magic, as if they were entirely real. With brief context and analysis in the introductions, the main focus is the retelling of the stories themselves. Welcome to Series 3, Folklorica Nordica. As these autumn days descend into the dark days of winter, we will journey into subterranean and spiritual realms through the folklore of the Nordic world. We will encounter the shamans, the subterranean beings, the wise folk and healers, and trolls and giants of Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Iceland, the Faroe Islands, and Finland. In these northern lands, we will encounter a fascinating body of tales retold to evoke not only the original magic of the stories, but also the beautiful and mysterious regions they come from. Episode 3, Mountain, Moor, and Forest The Holder folk, sometimes referred to as the Hidden Folk, or Subterraneans, are preternatural beings that populate wild areas and are given to enticement and abduction. While thought to live beneath the ground, they are often sighted, heard, and experienced in forests, mountains, and moors. In this episode, we will catch glimpses of the Holdra, a stunningly beautiful woman with long hair and an animal's tail. We will encounter Danish elves, far from the sweet beings of Christmas tradition, but rather dangerous figures whose dances can cause madness and whose powers can cause sickness. We will encounter human beings whose lives are forever altered by their encounters with the Holder folk. Indeed, it is often dangerous for humans to cross paths with the hidden folk in a Norwegian folklore, there is a phrase for someone who has disappeared in the wilderness or who displays psychological abnormalities, the result of having encountered the Holta folk. They are said to have been taken into the mountain. And we will see these beings through a character we met in episode one, through the eyes of the projected soul of a Finn, another name for a Sami or Lap, the Finno-Ugric-speaking indigenous population of northern Scandinavia, who bear some cultural resemblance to Inuit or Eskimo. And this Finn is not to be confused with the modern Finns of Finland. In Norwegian and Swedish folklore, the Finns are often attributed with magical powers, very much rooted in lap shamanic traditions. One of these powers was the ability to project the soul, separated from the body, through a sort of shamanic trance and travel to distant places. The Norwegian word hug, in fact, refers to the soul, and previous episodes explore the lore surrounding the ability of the hug to separate from the human body. The Finn, who is a central character I have constructed as the main narrative viewpoint, has the ability to do this at will. While on such a soul journey, our Finn will witness the frightening and unsettling encounters between human beings and the hidden folk. Now, the hidden folk are so called because they are largely invisible to normal human eyes. This theme of invisibility is most poignantly rendered in an Icelandic origin myth, 
to that primal couple ubiquitous in Christendom, Adam and Eve. The Holdefolk were originally children of Eve, the primordial mother, who lived with her large family in an idyllic garden surrounded by a sort of northern paradise. Craggy cliffs and dramatic seaside, deep caverns and forest-lined rivers. The children were free to explore this paradise, but in just one instance, they were instructed to return home in time for bathing and grooming, as they had a very special guest arriving. However, as children do, one particular group of Eve's children lost track of time, for they had found something extraordinary on a hill. Small mounds with unusual holes, which looked like frozen water bubbles. Upon closer inspection, it gave the children the impression of being something like windows. Other mounds looked like piles of mud frozen in mid-ooze. These strange rocks were so fascinating. Some were bare and ragged, while others were covered in a springy moss. So, the children lost track of time, came home filthy, and had no time for a bath. The poor mother was so ashamed of their appearance that she sent them off to play, keeping her clean and groomed children in the house. She then lied to the special, mysterious guest, saying all her children were present. The special, mysterious guest, however, knew better, and Eve heard him whisper, "'Whatever has been hidden from me shall be hidden from all people.'" And later, when the guest had departed, and Eve went looking for her children. She heard them, giggling and talking, but could not find them. She searched and searched and continued hearing them, but could not find them. Then, she realized the significance of the stranger's words. When the children did appear to her, they were transformed. Though they retained their original form, they were brighter, radiant, and full of an otherworldly beauty they could also transcend the need for speech and communicate directly with each other's minds. And they were drawn to that strange, rocky field with the moss-covered stones, spending hour upon hour exploring and playing. And though they tried to share their experiences with their other brothers and sisters, a rift deepened. The other children of Eve and the Holdefolk had so little in common anymore that, eventually, the Holdefolk spent nearly all their time in the rocky field and eventually remained there, subterranean hidden citizens of another realm. It is this rift between the Holdefolk and human beings that will be explored in this episode's stories. As the Finn's hug, his traveling soul, soared over mountain lakes and high mountain farms, over tiny golden lights in the windows of turf-covered roofs, as he soared over the soothing monochromatics of winter, he felt pulled towards the Nordamark. Something awaited him there. His soul flew towards the great hum of that dark forest, the birch clusters and the conifers swaddled by pure white. 
swathed in an ancient cooing silence like a crone's cracked and ragged tones. The Finfelt pulled just beyond to the borders of this place, the juncture of winter's very soul. As ice-sheened twilight spread across the world, he finally settled just outside the window of a cottage, as warm as beating heart. Yet within, he sensed cave blackness and perpetual exile, soul-deep scars borne by someone who had known Halderlairs and their uncanny timelessness. An old man sat in front of the fire with his family, including a young girl, which Finn was surprised to see was full of wild goat soul and spiritual sight. Her hug was aflame. And the old man, ancient, sickly, and with a fragility that soaked down to his very bones, his hug carried the branding, the burn marks of the holder shot, of the flaming switches that left irreparable damage to the human soul. And by the way the young girl stared at the old man, the Finn wondered if she saw it too. The welts, soulish burns that could not be seen by ordinary human eyes. Nonetheless, what was evident was the way the old man's cave-black eyes stared into nothing, the way he murmured sometimes in girlish tones, and sometimes in baritone babble, like the ancient language of an elder god, as if the Jotuns spoke through him. His hook seemed to shift in shape and size and color, and Finn knew that this must be bewildering for the poor soul, that the old man must perceive the world around him as unreal, lifeless, and foggy. Then, the old man sat straight up, the movement somehow like a doll being forced into position by childish hands. His head bobbed from side to side, much like a dog's, when it expresses curious bewilderment. And his gaze was directed at a dark corner of the cottage beyond the firelight. The Finn noticed that Goat Girl, for so he now deemed her because of her wild goat soul, was cowering by the fire and was also staring into the dark corner. And by the way she wrapped her arms around herself and drew her knees in, he knew she was seeing it too. In the corner, in the darkness, a lithe, slender-waisted figure, like an ink drawing, ink formed from cave-black subterranean rivers, falling gracefully into mind-bending depths. A female figure writhed and taunted and spun in that black corner, a tail whipping back and forth like a cow's when it is shooing away flies. There was anger and sadness in her movements. Everyone, even Finn, cringed when the old man began to shriek, Giri Ornohovd, I see you well enough. Though the world seems far from me like a taunting vista at the end of a long mountain cave. Though I can't see the world, I see you. I see you. And as the old man's sobs poured forth, tainted with that feeling of cave blackness and perpetual exile, soul-deep scars borne by someone who had known Halderlairs and their uncanny timelessness, as the old man sobbed these things, the Finn remembered. He remembered the old man from long ago and his mountain prison. For Finn had been there.
The Finn recalled that the old man was once a handsome young shepherd, and that when he had first saw this young shepherd, he lay on a grassy hillock, singing softly, his silver voice merging with the blue tint of twilight, like moonlight on a mountain lake, always hush-voiced and subdued and cool to the eyes. Peaceful, yes, but something was, was off. The Finn narrowed his eyes, for a thin veil of sensuality soaked the mountainscape. A girlish whisper, full-mouthed and full-bodied, molding the land into bewitching curvatures. Yes, the peace was a spell. The Finn tried to reach the young man, tried to call to him, to move quickly away from that cave mouth, exhaling Plutonian breath. But the spell was too great. His hook was not powerful enough, was not visible to the shepherd, whose eyes were closed, whose very mind was closed to the known world. And bursting from the cave's blackness, a beautiful girlish form came towards the young man, emerging from the cave's blackness, her cow's tail lashing back and forth with excitement. She knelt down beside him and ran her fingers over his features, his chest, and close by in the field was the shepherd's cattle, which he had been sent to retrieve. And when the holder grabbed the shepherd by the feet and began dragging him towards the cave, the cows moaned and bellowed, something strained and shrieking in their wide-eyed bovine terror. And as the cave's blackness swallowed both the holder and the shepherd, the cow stampeded down the hillside. The Finn followed them into that space of blackness and exile, and heard a commotion from the valley, heard the shouts of the search party and the clamoring dissonant church bells, an auditory beacon for the wilderness-bewildered soul. And while the search party shouted and, and shouted, the Finn sensed a strange shifting of time and space all around him, saw the sleeping form of the shepherd being pulled into a hopelessly narrow passage, and he followed as the young man was dragged into depths that did not make sense even in this vast mountain. The Finn felt very afraid that even he would get lost, but summoned his courage for the sake of the shepherd. And when they finally arrived into a blue-litten cave, the holder had awoken the shepherd, who stared at the holder's form in both longing and terror. For her beauty was like a view from a mountaintop, but her tail, her tail was all barnyard muck and matted animal fur. It whipped at her from side to side, as if both in flagellation and fly-killing irritation. So strange, thought the Finn, that her wildness should be so beautiful, so unsettling, and so disgusting all at the same time. The shepherd must have thought the same, for his face alternated between fearful cringes and awestruck lust. And all the while, the Finn hid in a dark corner of the cave. He knew what he must do. After the whole dread cradled the shepherd, her manure matted tail sliding back and forth contentedly on the dusty cave floor, she would retreat into a black tunnel at the sound of her father calling her. 
and the fin would then whisper into the shepherd's mesmerized mind reminders of home, of sunlight and feast days, and church bells and green pastures. Then, a small knowing light would return to the shepherd's eyes, to Ola's eyes, for Finn had come to know that this was the shepherd's name. Yet it seemed hopeless, for the Holdra always returned and wove her spell. The Finn pitied her desire, pitied her infatuation with this young man, so other than and enticing to her cave-born mind. Yet her desire, her feminine wiles, were a prison to this young man, who did not belong to this realm. The Finn felt pity for them both. The Finn stayed in the cave blackness for many days, perhaps many weeks, remained in that uncanny, timeless realm, continued to whisper reminders of home to Ola, blew into his mind with his soul breath word pictures of sunlight and feast days and church bells and green pastures. And when the Holder returned with the harp, when she taught him to play tunes that reminded the Finn of birds twittering, of the lamenting whine of the lure during a summer's evening, he felt quite hopeless that he could ever break the spell. For the harp spun a pasture world within the cave's blackness, made Ola see blue sky, where there was really only a stony vault, made him see grass, where there was only actually dusty bedrock. And now, when the holder retreated again to her father, the Finn emerged again from his shadow and saw that Ola's skin was taking on a gray tinge, a sunlight-deprived aspect. His very form seemed softened, as if his frame were melting wax, as if his bones were becoming all-cooked potato softness. He would die in this place. So, the Finn summoned all his powers, chanted wind rhythms, sang the buzzings and murmurings of sun-soaked fields, blew into Ola's mind with his soul breath, word pictures of sunlight and feast days and church bells and green pastures. The Finn utilated the flapping of white linen around a girl's shapely legs. He warbled and stomped the sweating, laughing beats of a village dance. And from the dark tunnel, he could hear angry feet pattering. The Finn retreated to his dark corner. But it worked, for Ola's eyes widened and with weakened voice cried out, In Jesus' name, shall I never return to my folk? An illusion shattered at the holy incantation. The blue-lit cave with its uncanny timelessness, with its hostile darkness, exhaled, sighed, and surrendered. And the Huldra stood at the mouth of Black Passage and wept. The Finn pitied her, for she loved him in her way, though her love would have possessed him so thoroughly that all his life force would have been drained. No, it must be this way. And with a sigh, the Holder told Ola, Keep well to the side when you pass through the door from our realm, else my father will harm you. Without another word, she took a step back into the darkness, her naked feet pattering like blind, pearlescent lizards, a lonely, echoing sound.
And now, as the Finn gazed at the old man from the window, he desperately wished Ola would have taken heed. But in his haste to flee that rock prison, Ola had not kept well to the side. And the old man, ancient, sickly, and with a fragility that soaked down to his very bones, his hook carried the branding, the burn marks of the holder shot, of the flaming switches that left irreparable damage to the human soul. For indeed, Holder's father had shot at him, and he had been hit. And by the way Goat Girl stared at the old man, the Finn wondered if she saw it too. The welts, soulish burns that could not be seen by ordinary human eyes. Story 2, Goat Girl and the Holder Herd The verdancy of this place, the suppleness of the fine whispering grass on swelling hills, the shush-shush and creak of pine copses being tossed by the wind, the pastoral highlands slanting gently upward from the river valley, well, it made her feel as wild as a goat. And the Finn followed calmly, wondering if he were invisible to her eyes too. She was bid to take food to her father, who was at the mill on the hill, and the Finn followed curious about Goat Girl, full of wild goat soul and spiritual sight, whose hug was aflame. Once provisions were delivered, Goat Girl couldn't bear to be parted from this high place with the fine whispering grass and the shush-shushing creak of the pine copses, felt the heavy sensuality of it all kiss and coddle her senses felt the thrill of cool and sun in her soul. Goat Girl threw herself onto the grass, sensing that the very earth wanted to cradle her and send visions into her mind's eye. It was too true and beautiful and luxurious to resist. She lay on her side so that the thick mountain woodland could be seen through the gentle blades of grass that perforated her vision. She willed something in herself to see further, into the mountain woodland, to see further down those tree-shaded paths, further than normal eyes could, and the Finn could see that her hug was aflame. Her hug was as golden and red-hued as the horizon, which pulled that sphere of ruby and molten light into slow oblivion. Goat Girl sighed with drooping eyes, which fluttered and closed. And the light of dying day mingled with that fey mingling of star milk and blue sky cast a subdued and yet strangely wild sheen onto the world. The fin felt a prickling, an inward raising of hackles for something approached. A strange wind rushing down the dark forest path, a herald of sorts. First, a lure, a mountain horn call resounded distant and traveling swiftly over impossible distances as a canyon-voiced echo. And then down that forest path, a dog's barking, 
and the sound of cowbells as clear as silver. In all of these sounds, there was a terrible clarity, too clear for human ears to bear. The Finn watched as Goat Girl's eyes widened into knowing and bewilderment. She sat straight up, and there was a dense clarity in her sinewy calves and arms, too, stark, strong, and poised. And under that fey mingling of star milk and blue sky, which seemed now to hover indefinitely over the world, some pack horses came over the ridge, loaded with cauldrons, flasks of whey, and butter churn. There came a herd of gray bulls, so robust they seemed something of the imagination and not of the earth. There came large flamed cows, the color a reddish color, and though they were on fire, they seemed to almost be aflame, aglow. And on their horns were golden buttons and around their necks silver bells. Now Goat Girl stood now and seemed to sway back and forth. The Finns saw a sublime gold overwhelm her hook like a rich and luscious dream. Indeed, this fay herd was sublime in its sheer wealth and vitality. The musculature and the size, rich and bountiful, and the beautiful cows were bearing the precious bounty of the earth. Yet for all the beauty, the Finn feared for Goat Girl's mind. The longing, the desire this sight conjured in human hearts could swell the soul to bursting, could make one so wild in the mind's eye that all normal perception became lazy, full of a fey fog. Then, emerging through the middle of the herd, was a shepherdess, preternaturally tall and with a dense clarity in the sinewy calves that peaked from under a skirt slightly hiked and tucked into a belt. A dense clarity in her sinewy forearms, in her giantess hand was a lure. Indeed, this had been the source of that shrilly sinuous, yet deep and echoing, uh, otherworldly horn call. A call to her precious cattle. The sacredness of these beasts echoed in the silver handles of the milking pail held in the giantess's other hand. She whispered to the cows, called them by unearthly, mysterious names, and called them in that soprano beckoning, so familiar to Goat Girl, who smiled at the sight. This woman, this giantess, was like Frigga, queenly and divine, sculpted from both mountain and grass, perfectly formed for a terrain both rocky and demanding yet undulating and curvaceous. The Finn watched with interest as Goat Girl began to walk towards the Holdra herd. A bold move, yet this girl was different from the rest. Fay and distant to her known world, the girl smiled as if her eyes had rested on the face of an old and dear friend. But as the girl approached, they disappeared. Except the cattle dog, and another girl in a blue skirt, whose cow tail swished beneath the hem. With the smile we sense in a dog's wagging tail. And Goat Girl walked with rapid longing towards the oddly clad shepherd girl. Her skirt dipped 
seemingly in the very substance of bluest sky and water. The fin sensed a strange kinship and a filling up of an infinite hole in Goat Girl, whose flaming hooks seemed to also quiver with an appalling sense of loneliness. And sometimes, even the agony of abandonment, but at the sight of the herd in this holdra, this oddity of a girl was all pulsating fullness, full of warmth, camaraderie, fellow feeling. And so, Goat Girl followed the blue-clad Huldra into the forest, into shadow-soaked places where the twilight gloom and its thrilling mystery soon deepened into a haunted indigo. Soon she wandered in blackness, catching glimpses of the blue skirt and squishing cowtail. And towering above the darkening tree line were the Vetla Mountains, another black mass in the blackness. The mountains seemed to be a gaping mouth above the tree lines, swallowing utterly her sense of herself. And though the village church bells rang in the distance, beckoning her back to the world of sunlight and feast days and green pastures, she felt down where her soul intersected her bones that despite the terror, she wanted this. She wanted to be taken into the mountain. And now, when the villagers tell the story, they say that Goat Girl returned only after many hours of ringing the church bells, and that there was something strange about her, though they couldn't quite put their finger on the change. Something indigo black and blue sky and pasture free surrounded her, infused her spirit, infused her movements. And though she was mostly a normal enough hurting girl now, there were times where she seemed to look straight through a person, even in mid-conversation. And when this happened, any villager knew that she would promptly head straight for the hill pastures and the forest. Story 3, Dead Elves, from Denmark. It had been some time since the Finn's hook had been drawn to the land of the Danes, but this pull towards Trolldeskov, for this was the name whispered to him by ethereal whispers, this pull towards Trolldeskov and its gnarled trees like agonized petrified trolls was irresistible. The moss-colonized beech trees were venerable, tortuous, and in their arboreal twilight, the forest floor was gorged with the decaying forest detritus, and the brilliant green moss was also gorged with this death. Perhaps the pool was a strange sense of paradox, that this place was always dying, and yet always living, dying extravagantly, and living prolifically. The fin could feel this gorging, this constant movement of loamy food through tubes could smell the exhalation down to the very back of his throat, and for miles, this constant feeding 
and dying in growth. This infinite cycle, this beautiful but grotesque circle, for miles and miles it extended as one living being. And utterly small and nondescript in the midst of this was a young herding boy watching his gorging bovine with a small smile. The fin was startled, first by the green of the grass in the small clearing, where the foliage overhead was thin slightly. It was green beyond comprehension. The grass was preternaturally thick like the hair of a healthy, robust and handsome young person. He sensed a sweetness about the place, a syrup coursing through the grass. Then, in the fin's ear came a small sing-song chanting, Dead elves, dead elves, dead elves. And as this fey whisper continued in his mind, his attention was drawn to a ring of tan mushrooms with thick caps. They had a tanned, dense aspect like thick loaves of golden bread, and from them, that same sense of syrup, sweetness of life fortified by sugar. It sent both hunger and deep satisfaction into the fin's hook, and he might have wandered into that fairy ring had he not have known better. For he sensed that beneath that sweetness, which kept these fairy ring mushrooms from decaying, there was a perverse reversal to the order of that forest, that order of perpetual decay and death, but also thriving life. No, the fairy ring fungi resisted death through a face syrup which perhaps fed the beauty of that ethereal green grass, but feeding a madness in humans who did not belong to that order. There is something unending, eternal in that circle, and while it mimicked the prolific cycle of growth in Trolduskov, it also brought a sense of terror to the Finn. A sense of that paradox that this place was always dying and yet always living, dying extravagantly and living prolifically, and could easily devour a single solitary human. It was strange that a circle of mushrooms could give the Finn such sensations, but this was a fairy ring, and not just an ordinary patch of fungi in a forest glade. And the herding boy stood right in the middle. His eyes glazed, his smile sweet. His head was tilted, as if he heard something. Indeed, the whispered proclamation of dead elves, dead elves, still lingered in the back of the Finn's mind, and he realized that this was the name this, of this strange place, a most potent haunt of what the Danes called the Elvesque. Yet somehow he knew that this was not what was luring the herding boy's mind into alien realms. And as the herd of cows instinctively began moving back towards the homestead, the Finn finally heard it, a fine voice, musical like birdsong and loamy like the forest floor, a voice called the boy's name in a beckoning sing-song. Yen Bovens, Yen Bovens, she called his name. So powerful was the disorienting nature of his voice that even the Finn had to fight both a feeling of vertigo and the desire to dance around wildly in circles. And dashing out of the fairy ring and towards the edge of the forest, towards the moor, the boy called, Here I am! The Finn followed, and as twilight deepened, he heard the panicked shouts of other adult voices, coursing and ricocheting through the trees. 
Voices also shouting the name of the boy. Yen Bovens! These were panicked adults, mother and father and uncles and aunties, who panicked because little Yen had not returned home with the cows by noon. And the Finn watched a most extraordinary scene as the boy's kin arrived at the edge of the forest and scanned the wide expanse of moorland. Her voice, the voice of a most potent and motherly Elviskund, a voice lullaby-rich that promised to fill all the holes left inevitably by the imperfections of our own mothers, lullaby-rich and full of promise to lonely herding boys who felt lonely even amongst their kin. And it was this call so rich and immense that even the adults heard it. So immense and so full of the promise of other worlds that it seemed to come from all the cardinal directions and even from directions not known to the human mind. So immense and full was this unearthly voice calling the name of the boy that the searching adults became disoriented and nearly became lost themselves. And then suddenly, the boy ran past the search party, full speed through the long grass, through the twilight-shaded gloom of Troldeskov. He ran past without even looking at them, and the stunned adults ran after him. Finally, catching him, his father held him firmly in his arms. The Finn, of course invisible to the adults and to the boy, came closer and peered into the boy's face. His pupils were wildly and profoundly dilated, as if their blackness sought to conquer the whole of him. And all the while, the boy struggled and writhed and shouted, Don't you hear how she's calling for me? Don't you hear? The Finn took a few steps back and walked sadly on, knowing this voice, this call, that had all the immensity of all the cardinal directions was too much even for him. He knew how the boy would fare. For the boy, when he had disappeared from sight, had danced with the elves. This the Finn knew, and would grow no more. Time had now halted for him. And when that voice, immense and rich and full of warm milk promise, when that voice began to bear down upon the Finn, began to speak syrup promises to his injured and lonely spaces. When that voice began calling his real name, which no man knew, well, he knew it was time to leave this haunt of the Elviske, to leave Trolldeskov and its fairy rings. And now for the outro. From this point on with every episode, I'm going to include a slightly longer outro. And that's going to usually be comprised of discussing the original stories and the extent to which I've used the original stories themselves and where I've done some creative elaboration. This outro first, I'd like to thank Simon Hughes again for being a translator extraordinaire and a first-rate expert in the lore of the North. He has provided invaluable sources, most notably for this episode, the work of Peter 
Kristen Asbjornsson, whose work, The Mountain and the Pasture, provided the frame narratives for stories one and two, which of course, um, stories one and two were Norwegian. The first story remains true to Asbjornsson's. The shepherd boy not returning and being trapped by a holder with a horrible tale, and this of course being the backstory of the sickly old man. I did take creative liberties in fleshing out the shepherd boy's cave experience, emphasizing the idea of timelessness and enchantment. In the original, um, the... God, I think it might be the holder or Ola. Oh dear. I think it's the holder, actually, as a part of her enchantment. Um, Plays an instrument. In fact, that's in the story, so I probably should not be confused on that fact because I've just read it. At any rate, um, in the original, the holder plays an instrument... Um, It's called the Jew's Harp, and the playing is so beautiful that um, it it creates a sense of the outdoors, essentially. And I decided that the holder would obviously play that instrument, like the original, um, as a part of the enchantment. Um, But also, I decided to have the Finn present to speak and remind Ola of these beautiful things from his own world in order to kind of work Finn as a central character into the story as something more than a passive observer. And also, um, in the original tale that the second story is based on, the girl who um, narrates says she was as wild as a goat in her youth. So that's in the original Asbjornsson story. So the girl who's actually telling the story from her narrative point of view says she was as wild as a goat in her youth, which I thought was a fantastic description. And it inspired me to call the main character Goat Girl. Again, the frame of my story is true to the original, except for the ending, um, where the holder herd disappears. Um, If I remember correctly, that story just ends at that point. Now, I added a new ending, which is actually from a separate tale, which does describe a girl who'd been taken into the mountains. So I've combined the two stories. Um, In the same vein, the story Dead Elves, the, the Danish story, is a combination of two stories as well. One is about a boy who no longer grows because he danced with the Elviske. And thank you um, to Ricky Hansen, by the way, for telling me how to pronounce that because I would have um, pronounced the D at the end. And I think I did mistakenly do that. So I do apologize. (laughs) So it's Elviske. And another, so the other story then was about a boy who became lost because of his pursuit of an enticing elven voice. So there's two stories, and I combine the two. Um, I also chose to set the story in a Danish woodland called Trolldeskov, or Troll Forest, because it's such an enticing name. And and it also follows, I think, the same principle of uh, my other stories, and that's what I like to do most, if not all of my retelling of existing lore, um, are often placed in specific locations so that listeners can gain the sense of setting that's so often lacking in the original narratives, presumably because the original listeners of these oral traditions, you know, originally oral, already had the sense of setting from experience. Now, if you're interested in fairy rings, it's interesting to note, I think this is fantastically interesting. If you're a massive geek like I am, then you'll find it interesting as well. Um, but apparently, the... Fairy rings are really notable because the the mushrooms are usually really, they're quite beautiful, actually, quite full. Um, they form that really interesting ring, which just looks unusual. And the grass is often brilliantly green. So they're very notable, and I think that's why people notice them in natural settings and have attributed them with 
you know, supernatural, um, I suppose, origins. Um, but apparently, the fungi contains a special sugar called trehalose. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly because I read it. But there you go. It's T-R-E-H-A-L-O-S-E, if you're interested in looking into it. And this prevents death by desiccation. And it also contributes to the notable green color of fairy ring grass. Um, and, of course, you'll probably link that with a kind of theme that was throughout the third story of the Finn noticing a particular sweetness, um, a spiritual sweetness in the story. And that's linked to what I discovered about this special sugar. And then lastly, of course, for further reading, you can see Simon Hughes's blog, NorwegianFolktales.blogspot.com. And this is a fantastic blog. It is full of fascinating content, particularly if you're interested in Norwegian folktales. And um, Simon has translated much of this from the Norwegian, meaning we would not have access to it otherwise. So a fantastic source. Um, there's also a book called Scandinavian Folk Belief and Legend, compiled by editors Kvideland and Semsdorf. So that's worth getting. You can get it on Amazon. Um, another interesting book to check out is called The Guardians of Iceland. Um, the story in the introduction, which explained or gave a particular view on the origins of the Holdefolk, um, the Icelandic origin myth, that came from that book. And it's called The Guardians of Iceland. Apologies, I don't remember offhand who the author is, but if you type that into Amazon or Google, you will find it quite easily. And lastly, thank you, thank you to everyone who has supported me on Patreon. And those of you who have listened and um, have even inquired about when I'm going to continue with the podcast, that's been really encouraging. Um, I had a hiatus during the summer. It was much needed. But now I am rested, I am back and ready to give my listeners a rich experience of the equally rich and imaginative folklore of the Nordic world.